Um, Just before we go, let's pray together. God, I pray that my words would be your words. That less of me and more of you, that people would see you in the words that um, we look at today and that you would speak to each one of us in our own individual lives and also to us as a congregation. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at James chapter 2 today. Um, And this is a difficult passage. It's also a really cool passage. And uh, we're going to jump right into it. So we're going to start with verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Pretty clear, somewhat terrifying You say you have faith, you make the proclamation, but what good does that do? You say you're a Christian, you get baptized, you have a nice Bible, uh, you come to church every Sunday. What good does that do? Can that kind of faith save anyone? The obvious answer is no. Verse 15 goes on to say, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing And you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give the person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Now the whole goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, that was a regular blessing, kind of like a go in peace that was given at that time. So um, that would kind of be like the Christian way of saying, you know, I'm going to pray for you or God bless you, that kind of thing. And when you're starving, does that do anything for you? Because sometimes that's what we do. We just, oh, I'll pray for you, but we don't really mean it. Or, you know, God bless, but the person is starving and they're just looking for some food. Um, For most of you know that I grew up in the Salvation Army, and Jeff and I were pastors in the Salvation Army. There's a guy in the Salvation Army, his name is William Booth. I don't know if anybody has heard of him, but he's the man who started the Salvation Army. And William Booth had a real heart for the poor. Um, He started off as a Methodist uh, preacher, but he recognized that his real heart were for those outside the church, not those inside the church. And he started a mission in the Salvation Army, and um, his whole goal was to, he just recognized that there were people without, and he wanted to make a difference, and he wanted to help those people come to salvation. Um, He had a motto, Soup Soap Salvation, and he recognized that you just can't go around and just preach. You can't just uh, share Christ with people, but there was a threefold thing. So soup stood for helping with their physical needs, giving them some actual food. Soap stood for helping a person get cleaned up so they could get a job, have some dignity, and then salvation. And again, it wasn't one of those things individually. He wasn't like, well, first I have to feed you, then I have to get you a job, and then I can talk about Christ. He talked about Christ all the way through. It was faith in action. It wasn't just Um, here's the church service. It was all of those things all intertwined together. Um, He also, one of the things that in London where he was, uh, something called the cab horse charter. And in those days, there were cab horses that would take people all over the place. And there was a charter that was made because some horses were dying and not doing well. And the charter said that the horses had to be um, fed, they had to be watered, they had to have a job, they had to have... Um, a place they'd have shelter, a place to uh, sleep at night. And William Booth was like, okay, so the horses in London got food, got water, got a job, got a place to sleep. And the people in London weren't treated as well as the horses. In fact, there's a couple of 
There's millions of stories. Google it sometime, look up lots of stuff about William Booth. But in those days, a lot of times, kids would come to the bars with, with their parents who went to the bar. They had little special stools in the bar for the children to sit on. And the kids would drink and a lot of times pass out, sometimes die because they didn't understand the, the dangers of alcohol in a small, tiny body like that. But just so many things. There's a story about a matchbook uh, factory. And in those days, matches were made differently. And William Booth and the Salvation Army came along and changed the whole way things were done so that people were able to live longer. So a lot of social justice as well. Um, If we look further and look at what Jesus has to say about the poor, I want to read for you the passage in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king turned to those on the left and said, away with you, you cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Hard words to hear. (laughs) We're going to continue on in James, verse 17. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough, unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now, in James, in in this uh, passage, it's not faith versus works. It's actually living faith versus dead faith. Faith and works together is real faith. Faith without works is dead. So think about it. Faith, if faith were to say, if somebody were to say, I have faith, and you see no actions, is it really faith? Just like I could say, okay, you guys, I'm a bodybuilder. Would you believe it? <laughs> Hopefully nobody would. In fact, I know you're not if you would. Because there's no actions, right? I, I have a certain body shape that shows that I'm not a bodybuilder. 
I don't have big, strong muscles. I don't go to the gym every day. Our actions prove what we truly believe and who we are. I don't care how much you talk about faith. Your faith is dead without actions. I will prove to you I have faith by my actions, not by my clothes, not not by my Bible, but by actions that are so extreme that the world would notice. I'm sure you've heard it said, integrity is who you are at work. Well, what's truly in our heart will come out in our actions. Verse 19 says, You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Now, that first part, um, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Um, This is thought to be referred to for Deuteronomy 6, 5. The good Jew would quote it every morning. The Shema, um, hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God is one. So it's kind of like, again, you're a good Christian. You, you, you do the Shema every morning and night. You believe that there is one God. But he says, good for you. A little bit of sarcasm there, James. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. They tremble. The hair, hair, on, hair on end. They know that there's one true God. They fear him. Sometimes I think the demons are further ahead than we are. Seriously. They recognize who God is. They fear him, they tremble, they know that he is the real God. James goes on to say, how foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Basically, he's saying, do you still need more? Aren't you getting it? Now, there's actually a really cool word play that we miss out on. Um, The Greek word for useless is argos, literally meaning not working. And Jesus applies this word to the workers who were idle in Matthew So basically what James is saying here is faith that does not work, does not work. And I just, I don't know, that just really connected for me. For you people who just don't like these wordplay things, I apologize. I always hated it when people were preaching and talked about Greek stuff. But for me, just that whole idea of faith that does not work, does not work, really connected for me. Verse 21 Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He who was called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God even by what we do, not by faith alone. Now the next, Tom, if you can bring up the next one, there's a little picture um, of two verses side by side. Um, A big chunk of James, um, this is kind of the big, big chunk that people are always confused with and unsure, and why, how does this work? Because James 2.4 basically says this, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So, but if you look to Romans, Um, And Paul, he says, a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. Now, what was going on? Were these two guys having a fight? (laughs) Were they just like, oh, no, you know, you're justified by works. No, you're justified by faith. Uh, It's not quite how it was going. But if you look further into it and you look at some of the commentaries and the words that were used, when Paul was talking about a first person is justified by faith, he's talking about how when you come to Christ, You don't have to come to Christ um, with anything else but by faith. There's no works to get saved in the first place. We come to Christ by faith, 
and he accepts us. Nothing else we need. So we're justified by faith. What James is talking about is justification at the end of our time. A person, when they stand before Christ after they've been here and they're before Christ, it's not faith alone. Our works are important too. Who we showed ourselves to be. And he's saying that that's important when we come before Christ at the end of our life. But Paul, again, justification by faith, talking about the beginning of our life. So when we come to Christ for the very first time, it doesn't matter who we are, where we are. He's saying, it's just faith. Believing in Jesus, God accepts us. Calls us, says, you're part of my family. Come, it doesn't matter who we are, what we've done. But in the end, Jesus is going to judge us. And it's not just saying, I had faith or I'm a good Christian. It's not just what we said with our mouth. It's what we said by our actions. That's important. In this passage we just looked at, we also talked about um, Abraham. Now, Abraham's kind of like the, the big kahuna in those days. He's the big guy. Everybody knew who Abraham was. Kind of like who William Booth was to the Salvation Army, Abraham was to the Jewish people. And when they heard, you know, the story, and, oh, Abraham, and, you know, there's the whole story about how he had his son, and God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. He took him to the altar. He was willing to do it, even though it was, like, the hardest thing ever. And God supplied the lamb and said, you don't have to kill him. But he, he went forward. He was willing to do what God had asked him. And they said, here's a great example. James is like, look at Abraham. And I'm sure sometimes people went, yeah, but that's Abraham. Seriously, that's Abraham. He's just so close to God. I couldn't do what Abraham does. He, he's just perfect. But I love how James goes on because now in verse 25, look at who he uses. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. She committed treason. She could have been killed. But she was an example that anyone could and should show their faith by action. So what do we do with all of this? How are we supposed to show our faith? How are we supposed to be different? I think sometimes we as Christians, we think that everybody outside the church, they're all evil, they're all bad. But you know what? There are a lot of people who are kind. There are a lot of people who um, give to others. So that doesn't necessarily show our faith if we're kind and good to others. Not that we shouldn't be. You could say, well, you know what? I love everybody. I love people. But you know what? So do lots of other people. So what's different? Maybe it's why we love. Because he first loved us. I think that's part of it. But let's take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, which again is really intertwined with James. Matthew 5, verse 43 says this. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I was at the Global Leadership Summit conference this week. Doug and I were there. 
And one of the sessions was led by a woman who's a survivor of the genocide that took the lives of nearly one million people in Rwanda in 1994. She survived by huddling silently with seven other women in a three-by-four-foot bathroom for 91 days. 91 days. Three-by-four, seven women having to be quiet. (laughs) And she was talking about forgiveness. She talked about how she met with one of the people who had killed her family because her whole family was gone when she got out of there after those 91 days. She asked us at the end to take time to look at our own lives and see who we were holding a grudge against, who we need to forgive. Know what my answer was? You. Yes, you, being Elam Chapel as a whole. I know, crazy, huh? You want to know why? Because you aren't loving the way I want you to. Crazy, right? The very thing I've been so passionate about, loving others, I haven't done for you. I haven't been loving you the way God asks. I've been holding a grudge. I've been angry. Seriously, my way to love is nothing compared to God's way. Why would I be holding you guys to my standard? Because I'm human? (laughs) Because I make mistakes? I was feeling really angry that not many people had signed up for trunk or treat. That's silly. People are starving and dying, and I'm worried about trunk or treat. Not that trunk or treat is bad. I believe God wants us to do that and to reach the kids in our community, and we have 20 people signed up. But to get mad and upset about it, that was the problem. You see, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has a heart for this church. I'm not the only one who has a heart for young people. I'm not the only one here who has a heart for those outside the church. And I know I'm not the only one listening and following God. So I apologize. I need to love you better. But I also need to challenge you to love. Love not by my standards, but by God's. To truly love those both inside and outside the church. And we've got some work to do as a church. Did you know that we lost 10 young adults this fall? Not that they left their faith, but they went to other congregations. Why? Because Elam wasn't working for them. They didn't feel at home here. They didn't feel like we cared for those outside of our walls. They wanted more. We all need to get better at loving those here, myself included. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? We're going to watch a video. Um, It's a video of William Booth, one of his visions that he had for those outside the church. Um, We're going to watch that now, and then I'll be back. I had a vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. 
In that ocean, I thought I saw multitudes of poor human beings plunging and floating and shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And out of this dark, angry ocean, I saw a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the stormy seas. And all round the base of the rock, I saw a vast platform. And on this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that some of those who were already safe on the platform were fervently helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach safety. But something puzzled me. Although they had all been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them. And what was equally strange and perplexing to me was that most of these people did not seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their eyes. But then I saw something wonderful. I saw a great being from above come straight from his palace, right through the dark clouds, and he leapt right into the raging sea among the drowning people. And there I saw him toiling to rescue them until the sweat of his great anguish ran down in blood. And he was continually crying to those already rescued, to those whom he had helped with his own bleeding hands, to come and help him in the painful and laborious task of saving the lost. But the strangest thing of all was that those on the platform to whom he called were so taken up with their trades and professions and money-saving and pleasures and families and community and gatherings and religions and arguments about it that they did not respond to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being who had himself by his spirit gone down into the sea. And so the multitude went on struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I saw something that seemed stranger than anything that had happened before in this very strange vision. Those whom this wonderful being cried out to to come and help him in his difficult task were always praying and crying to him to come to them. Some wanted him to come and stay with them and spend his time and strength in making them happier. Others wanted him to come and take away various doubts and misgivings they had concerning the truth of some letters which he had written them. Others wanted him to come and make them feel more secure on the rock, so secure that they would be totally sure they would never slip off again. They used to meet and get as close to the rock as they could, and looking towards the mainland where they thought the great being was, they would cry out, Come to us, come and help us. But all this time, he was down among the poor drowning creatures, crying to them in a hoarse voice, Come to me, come and help me. And then I understood it all. It was plain enough. That sea was the ocean of life, the sea of real, actual human existence. Those multitudes of people struggling in the stormy sea were the billions of sinners from every race, language, and nation. That great sheltering rock was Calvary, the place of the cross. And the people on it were those who had been rescued from sin and hell and who professed to be followers of Jesus Christ. 
That mighty being who called to them from the tempest was the Son of God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is still struggling to save the dying multitudes about us from this terrible doom of damnation, and whose voice can be heard above the music and machinery and noise of life, calling on the rescued to come and help him save the world. My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the waters. You are on the rock. Jesus is in the dark sea, calling on you to come and help him. Will you go? I showed that video not to make you feel guilty. It's not what it's about. But for you to recognize that there are people who are drowning, people who are hurting, and sometimes our lives get so busy that we don't recognize it. People we work with are going through rough stuff. And if they don't know Christ, they don't, have, they don't have a hope. They don't have the knowledge that somebody's there with them. And God has placed us here. God has asked us to be his hands. And what are we doing about it? There are people who need us, both inside and outside this church. And are we standing on the platform enjoying our services, or are we going out into the water? Do our actions show our faith? Do they show our trust in God? Are we willing to try new things? Are we willing for things to get messy? God will show us what to do. He will put people in our path for us to love, we just have the courage. We just need to have the courage to do it. Remember, it's not Justina's plan. It's God's plan. And we don't have to do it alone. He sent his spirit to be with us. He has overcome. He wins. And all he asks is that we follow him and listen to what he asks us to do. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and confess sometimes it seems like our faith is dead. We go about our busy lives and don't have the time or sometimes just don't care about others. Forgive us. Help us to notice those around us. Help us to get into that lifeboat and go rescue the lost. Give us your eyes to see the people around us people in our city, our neighborhood, our workplaces, our families, and even our church. May our hearts break like yours as we truly see them. Help our church be known for our faith and our actions, for our living faith, for truly loving people, for also loving our enemies, but most of all, for loving you. Amen.